I hope you guys had an awesome Christmas. Hope you're ready for the new year. Um, those of you guys who don't know me, I'm Peter. I usually teach the college and career students, but um, this week Scott is on vacation with his family. So I'm filling in for him and uh, decided to bring the college over with me. So you guys just got blessed by uh, the college worship team. They're very awesome and we're very thankful. All right, so I got a lot to get through and not enough time. So let's pray and let's get into it. God, we thank you uh, that we have the opportunity to be here tonight. We, we praise you for the mighty works that you've done in our lives so far. And we ask that right now would be a time of uh, refreshment and encouragement, Lord, that we could study your word and, and allow it to convict us where we need to be convicted and allow it to comfort us where we need to be comforted. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to be redeemed and renewed people living after you. And in your name, Lord, amen. In the college studies, we've been going over sin. We've been studying it in a topical kind of sense. We've been looking at sin as, um, first of all, where does it come from? What is it? How does it impact us? And now we're going through specific sins. So tonight, you guys have the very lucky and very fortunate uh, opportunity to hear the next teaching on lust, sexual lust. The main, I know, isn't it a great one after Christmas and ready for the New Year's? Sexual lust, yeah. Let's talk about it. You know, we're all pumped about it. I know, I could, I could sense it from you guys. And uh, the main passage we're going to be in tonight is 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you guys have your Bibles, you can flip there. But I want to give a little bit of an intro to this study because there's something I need to say before we get into it. Because this, was a, this is a huge part of my testimony, and it's a huge part of my life and walk with God today because sexual lust has been and continues to be one of the strongest areas of temptation and failure in my Christian walk. And one of the stumbling blocks that I had to overcome in coming to Christ, those of you guys who don't know, I grew up in this church, but around the age of 13, I became an atheist, walked away from God for three years, and then ended up coming back when I was 16 years old. This issue of sexual lust was one of the big reasons. It wasn't the only one, but it was one of the big major reasons why I walked away from God in the first place. And here's why. When I grew up in church, I got a very negative view of my sexuality. I had a very negative view of it. I thought of God and sexuality as not really going together to such an extent that I thought that in order to have passion inside of my sexuality, I needed to leave God. I needed to go away from him. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm hoping that that's not where you're at tonight, but unfortunately that is the character qualities of a lot of Christians around the world where we get this idea from the Bible. Uh, I shouldn't say it's from the Bible. It's from our understanding of the Bible that somehow God is opposed to passionate sexuality and nothing could be further from the truth. You see, we tend to confuse this topic of lust. So when we hear the Bible say, like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if you lust after someone in your own heart, you have already committed adultery with that person. We hear that and we say, yeah, that's that negativity towards sexuality that we're talking about. What you're doing in that moment is you're confusing the word lust with sexual attraction, passion, and desire. And that's not what lust is. Let me give you guys just one quote. I could quote many, many, many that would turn you guys red and make you very uncomfortable. But let me just quote one. Proverbs 5, verse 18 through 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. 
There are three beautiful things that I see out of this. Number one is describing a joyful marriage. Man, it's not, it's not a bland marriage. It's not a marriage where they're like, I guess we'll make it till death and uh, we'll see how that works out. No, this is a marriage that's very passionate. It's very fiery. The second thing that you notice is that they have a passionate sexuality with one another, right? Again, that one phrase where it says, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Again, that can make us a little uncomfortable in church, but that's what the Bible says. It really says that. The third and final thing is you notice that this is not a new couple. They're not in the honeymoon phase. Notice what he says. Be rejoiced with the wife of your youth. Meaning these people aren't in their youth anymore. These are an older couple, and they still have a passionate, vibrant marriage with a wonderful sexuality woven into it, which dispels the myth, right? When I first got married, people in the world and people in the church I don't know if they were being well-meaning or not, but they would be like, yeah, how you doing? I'm like, man, marriage is great. And they'll say, just wait, right? <laughs> you're, you're new. You're new around the block, but just wait. It'll, it'll wear off. You know, you'll leave the honeymoon phase. But what this passage is actually telling us is that you don't have to leave the honeymoon phase. There never has to be a time where your marriage becomes less passionate. In fact, biblically, passion in Christ is always on the incline if we know where to look. And honestly, when I started reading through the Bible on my own when I was around 22 years old, it shocked me how I never realized the Bible's positive view of sexuality earlier. The Bible is filled with sexuality. In fact, the very second page of your Bibles has a man who is singing a love poem to his wife. And remind you, they were naked when he was doing this. Throughout the Bible, there's very intimate discussions of sexuality, and in fact, there's an entire book devoted to it. Now, here's just a little bit of advice for everyone studying the Bible. If God devoted an entire book to one subject, it's important. The Song of Solomon is filled with rapturous, sensual poetry about a man and a woman who are deeply in love and are deeply passionate about one another. And uh, it, it, I will say that it is pretty much just the Christian church that has this, this weird um, aversion to sexuality. The Jews were not that way, and they continue not to be that way to this day, as a matter of fact. Um, a rabbi was once quoted when he was asked about the Song of Solomon. He says, all the books of the Tanakh, which is what they call the Old Testament, all the books of the Tanakh are holy, and the Song of Solomon is the holy of holies. In fact, they read the Song of Solomon on a yearly basis on the festival of Yom Kippur. So they very, very much enjoy and revel in the idea of passionate sensuality in the right context, which is what it's all about. Now, another thing that should have just opened my eyes to the ridiculousness of thinking that the Bible was opposed to passionate uh, sexuality and marriage and relationships is Ephesians chapter 5. It's a passage that most Christians are aware of, But in Ephesians chapter 5, what does it say? It says, Wives, submit to your husbands and respect them, just as the church submits, respects, and loves Christ. And then the next passage says, And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, look at what that's saying. It's saying that a marriage has a purpose, which is very different than what the world thinks, beyond fun and procreation. Right? That's not what marriage was designed by God primarily to accomplish. 
Marriage was primarily organized by God to glorify himself so that we can see in a relationship what the love of God practically looks like. Now, think about this for a second. If I really wanted to know how I, as a Christian, should love, respect, and submit to Jesus, could I do that by looking at the women in the church? Now, according to the Bible, I should be able to. I should be able to. I should be able to look at the wives in the church and I should see their passionate devotion for their husbands and say, that is how I should feel towards, towards Christ. If I go to a wife in the church and I say, why do you submit to your husband? They say, obligation. Trust me, not my decision, but God kind of you know, put me in a, a headlock and told me I had to. It sucks. He's kind of an idiot, but I got to do it, right? If that is how I view that level of submission and respect, how is that going to reflect in my relationship with God? Right? Why do you respect and love Jesus? Well, I guess I have to. I guess I kind of have to. He's not the best choice, but I think I could do a better job, but hey, I guess I have to. And again, if someone wanted to know the passionate love that Jesus has for his church, could they look at the husbands in the body? Could they look at me and say, man, the way that that guy loves his wife makes me long for the love of Jesus. The way he takes care of her, the way he sacrifices for her, the way he loves and cherishes and adores her, all of it points me to a greater love and intimacy that God has, and it's beautiful. You see, we do not glorify God in mere rule following. God does not delight in following rules without joy. He does not delight in people doing what he says without passion or desire. God is glorified when his church joyfully submits to his commandments because we love him. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, if you're listening with one ear open, which I hope you're not, this doesn't mean that if you're looking at your marriage and you're saying, well, my marriage doesn't have this joy, therefore, let's get divorced, right? Because God isn't glorified in rule following, so might as well just divorce, right? No, this is an encouragement to get passion in your marriage, If you don't have it in your marriage, the Bible's not saying, we'll give up. The Bible's saying, you can have it. You can have it. And as we talk about lust and what it is and what it looks like, what we're going to see is that lust, against what I thought as a teenager, is not the way to passion, but it's the way away from it. It's the way to live a very passionless, selfish, obsessive life that will never be satisfied or fulfilled. That's what lust leads to. And what the Bible is telling you is if you lack passion in your marriage, if you lack passion in your relationships, it's not because God's love is broken, it's because you're following lust. So we must define it, we must understand it, and we must understand that by going away from it, we will be going towards greater passion and joy, which is what God intended for marriage all along. So what is lust? I'm going to give you guys my definition of lust. This is not going to be found in a dictionary, but I'll give it to you anyway. I believe that if you look through the Bible and you compare all the passages that talk about sexual lust, I think that you can come to this conclusion fairly easily. But here's what it is. Selfish, I mean, sexual lust is the selfish pursuit of pleasure, satisfaction, joy, happiness, however you want to put that, in our sexuality over God, propelled by our own dissatisfaction. Okay, I'm going to say that again. It is the selfish pursuit of pleasure, satisfaction, joy, in our sexuality over God, 
and it is propelled by our dissatisfaction with the way our life looks. Okay? And I'm going to read you guys a story tonight that is going to illustrate it, and it is in 2 Samuel chapter 13. So this is going to illustrate what lust looks like and why it does lead to a passionless existence. And I'll give you a little backstory. 2 Samuel is, um, a lot of it, most of First and Second Samuel are a biography of David's life, King David's life. And King David, as we should know, like all the other heroes, and I put that in quotations of the Bible, have a lot of good qualities that should be exemplified, but they also have a lot of negative qualities that should be steered far from. And when you look at the life of David, he's a classic example of that. There's a lot of beautiful things about the life of David. He is a man after God's own heart. He has written a lot of wonderful poetry in the book of Psalms that has encouraged and blessed billions of believers throughout the years. However, he was a man that utterly failed in the category of sexual lust. He had multiple wives. He had multiple concubines, which are um, they're basically relationships with women where you would have sexual relations with them, but you would not give them the rights of a wife, which is a pretty horrific practice. David engaged in that kind of practice. David also had sex with a married woman and ended up killing her husband to try to cover up his affair in the story of Bathsheba. So here's a man who failed pretty heavily in this area, and he's not to be exemplified in this area. But unfortunately, whether you want to be an example or not, you are one. I may not want to be an example to people in my life, but if I have kids or if I have younger people around me, they will look up to me, whether I like it or not. David's kids looked up to him, which had some positive ramifications and it had some negative ramifications. Here are the negative ones. David ends up having a son named Amnon. We're going to read a little bit about him. 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now, this is, this is not his full sister. This is a half-sister, because remember what I said, David had multiple wives. So Amnon came from one wife, Tamar and Absalom came from a different wife. But they are still half-brother and sister, which is wrong according to the Bible. Now, the next thing it says is, Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, I'm not going to go over the next verses with you, but essentially what happens is he has a best bud named Jonadab, who's kind of a slimy dude, and he tells him, I got a plan for you, man. You know, you can't, you don't feel like you can have anything to do with her, but here's what you do. You fake being sick, you ask for her to come in and bring you food, and when she comes in to bring you food, you put the moves on her. Now, Amnon, unfortunately, was a little bit more perverted than his friend, and he took that advice a little bit differently. This is verse 11. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. And she said, No, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where would I go to get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep you from marrying me. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than her, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her so much that he hated her more than he had ever loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. That's a pretty heavy story. It's a very heavy story. And before we go into the implications of lust, I just want you guys to see the impact of David's life on his children and society's impact on his children. 
Tamar grew up watching a father who treated women like that. And if you're a little girl and you grow up in a society that treats women like that, and you grow up with parents that treat women like that, eventually you're going to think, I must be worth that much. And that's exactly where Tamar was. And we find this in a couple sections. Number one, when he was about to rape her, she begs him to marry her. After he ends up raping her, she begs him to marry her again. Those are not desires of someone who has high self-esteem or who believes in her intrinsic value. This is the words of someone who has been viewing the the, the dissimilarity between men and women her whole life and has seen that women have no intrinsic value based upon what she's viewed. Not based on what the Word of God says, but based on what she's viewed in her family and in her society. And unfortunately, this, what's happening in Tamar's life, what's going on, it hasn't stopped. Meaning this type of behavior, this type of belief system between men and women and abuse continues to this day and is very prevalent in our day and age, which is unfortunate. And it's propelled by our society. So when I, as a man, look out at this world and I say something, which I've said before, and it, it kind of makes me cringe that I ever said it, and I ever used to believe it. I used to say, how, how could I be expected not to lust? Look at what women act like nowadays. Right? Now, I could say that, but in, in essence, what I'm blaming is I'm blaming the victims. Right? The reason why they act that way, the reason why they dress that way, the reason why they are that way is because we've treated them that way. And I, as a man, am responsible for that. So I can't look at it and say, like, well, it's not my fault. You know, it's society's fault. Well, no, I'm a part of society, and I'm perpetuating the cycle in the way I act and behave. So I need to take responsibility. Amnon, as you can see from the story, watched his father treat women that way and didn't see anything wrong with treating women that way. Right? He doesn't, he, he's not embarrassed about what he did. He's not shamed about what he did. He is not sorry about what he did. And later on, David actually does nothing about this. He's nothing about this. And her brother Absalom ends up killing Amnon, which is actually what should have happened to him in the first place. In the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the penalty for rape was death. It was the death penalty. But David didn't do it. And this this is an aside. This is just to us, to all of us in here. Don't let your sin disqualify you from leading your kids. David messed up. We all mess up. But he looked at his life and he was so ashamed about what he did. He said, who am I to judge my son when I've done so much? So because he did that, that may sound loving, but because he did that, he never disciplined his children. He never showed them the right way because he disqualified himself from doing that for them. They never learned from his mistakes because he never explained them to them. Don't let your sin disqualify you from being the leader of your household. Repent, go back to God, and allow him to use you as he intended. Now, let's go back into this. How does lust look, and why can't it sustain passion? Right? What's wrong with it that it can't sustain passion? The first thing I get from this is notice how obsessed he is 
with what he can't have. He's so obsessed that it actually have kids, or if you're around teenagers, you've heard them say words that you're like, that's not love, right? They'll be like, I met this guy, and he's the best, you know, and I, I would give anything to be with him, and you, you just kind of, you know, okay, I'm sure, yeah, but it's not true, right? Your guy says, I met this girl, she's the one, you know, and he's like 12, and you're just like, ah, oh, that's cute, you know, you, you'll grow out of it, you know, but, you know, when you have that obsessive, passionate, crush on somebody, it could seem a lot like love, but it's not, and it's distinguished from love in several ways. The first one that I'm going to mention to you guys is he's obsessed specifically with what he cannot have. He's obsessed with what he cannot have. He's not passionate about a relationship with her. He's passionate about what he doesn't have yet, and we know that that's the case because when he finally gets her, he hates her. When he finally gets her, first of all, she rebuffs him, But then he forces her, which is another aspect of his obsession, and then he resents her for it the second after. Why? Because in his mind, he thinks like a lot of us think. If only I had someone like that, I would be happy. If only I was in a dating relationship like this, then my life would matter. If only someone that beautiful could be with me, then I would have purpose. If only my marriage looked like that. If only my sexuality looked like that. If only I could be with someone like that then I'd be happy. That obsession with what you can't have propels you. And when you finally do receive it, when you finally do get it, you become sickened by it. Which is why the divorce rate in our country is so appalling. What we've realized is that, like Amnon, when you finally get what you wanted so badly, you will end up hating it. It may not be as immediate as Amnon, It might not be instantaneous. It might take a year, two years, three years, 10 years, 25 years, but eventually you will end up hating that which you loved and wanted so much. You know, as a pastor, I have to see a lot of divorce, and it's it's always so sad for me to, to talk to these people and to know that there was a time where they stood up on an altar and they looked in each other's eyes and they said, I will be with you forever. You are the person that makes my life worth living. I want to spend every second, every moment with you. And those same people who said that 10 years later are looking at each other saying, I don't want to be in the same room as you ever again. The level that you love is the level that you end up hating when lust is what propels you. We resent, we want, and are obsessed with what we can't have. And then when we finally have it, we resent it. Again, I don't have to explain this to you. If you have children, Christmas just happened, right? the toy that they're so obsessed with, that they would die to get, that, oh, if I only had this, I'll never ask you for anything again. If I could only have this one thing. And then you give it to them two days later, they're sick of it, and it's in the corner gathering dust. And the only time they're going to want it again is if another kid, how dare they pick it up, right? Then all of a sudden, it's beautiful again. Then all of a sudden, I need it again, right? That's how lust works. You resent what you once desired so much. It's an obsession. This is why, by the way, my generation doesn't want to get married. We don't want to get married because we look at it and we say marriage is the death blow for relationships, right? If we, if we just stay dating and we never actually possess a committed relationship, then the passion will never leave, right? Well, no, that's not true. There's another issue with that. And here's the big issue. There's a lot, but here's the big issue with that. And this is why, by the way, the Bible says that the biblical sex ethic is no sex outside of a covenant of marriage. Why does the Bible say that? Very simple. When you're in a relationship with someone 
and you grow close to them and you want to be intimate with them, it requires you to be vulnerable with them. And to be vulnerable with a person who is not committed to you is detrimental to your health. It destroys and erodes your identity. Where you get to the place where you realize that you are in a transactional relationship and not in a loving one. And this is what I mean. When I I have gluten intolerances, which is terrible, but I, I live with it. But that means I have to shop a lot at Sprouts. I don't like to, but I do. I shop at Sprouts a lot because they charge a ton of money for something that shouldn't cost that much. But anyway, I go to Sprouts all the time. And here's the thing. I don't love Sprouts. I love their product. I love what they sell. I don't love them. I have no commitment to them. And if I could get their product somewhere else better for cheaper, I'm going there. I have no loyalty. I have no commitment. I never sat down and looked at Sprouts, the store, and says, I vow to love and cherish you and to go to you no matter what, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. I never did that. I just said, you know what? I like what you sell. I'm going to go. I'm going to take what I want, and I'm going to leave if I want. Essentially, that is the kind of relationship that people live in when they have a sexual relationship before marriage. It's transactional. It's not about the relationship. It's about the product, where each person has a deep amount of insecurity because they know if you can find someone better than me, you will leave. Why don't you commit? Well, because I don't want to miss out on a better opportunity, right? That's why people don't commit to what they have. That's, that's the issue that we live with. So yes, we've come up with a solution to this problem, but it's not a very good one. So our solution to lust is more lust. Right, so we're like, okay, so lust obviously leads to a lack of passion in marriage. So what do we do? Let's just make more lust, right? Let's never commit to one another, and let's have multiple partners, and let's just keep going, and then maybe when I'm 45, I'll settle down and get married, assuming that my lust will leave me at that point. The more you feed lust, the stronger it gets. It doesn't work that way. You cannot outrun lust. You can't outdo it. That's why the idea of a bachelor and bachelorette party always made me laugh. It's this idea that I could just get it all out of my system in one fell swoop. It doesn't work that way. The more you feed lust, the more it demands on your soul. You will never have enough. In the Proverbs chapter 14, it says, The pits of hell and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of man. As someone who struggles a lot with pornography, I can tell you guys that that is absolutely true. As a teenager, it didn't matter how much I watched. It didn't matter how much I engorged myself. I wanted more and more. It doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to longing. Esther Perel, who is a uh, marriage counselor, she uh, gave a talk called The Secret of Desire, and it's really insightful. She's not a Christian, but it's a very insightful talk. And she's kind of diagnosing the problem that I've been telling you guys. She says, on the one hand, we need security, predictability, safety, dependability, reliability, and permanence. All these anchoring, grounding experiences of our lives that we call home. But we have an equally strong need, men and women, for adventure, for novelty, for mystery, for risk, for danger, for the unknown, for the unexpected, for surprise. Give me belonging, but give me identity. Give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort, yet give me edge. Give me novelty, yet give me familiarity. Give me predictability, yet give me surprise. And we think it's a given that toys and lingerie are going to save us with all that. See what she's saying? People are trying to engage passion through wanting different things. They say, man, I want, I want commitment. I want the comfortability of commitment. 
but I also want novelty. I want the freedom to leave at any point in time. You see, we want what we can't have. We want the grass is always greener on the other side. And because of that, we are always longing for something new. We're never, ever satisfied, which leads to the second point. This obsession is utterly selfish. This is not a passion born out of desire to serve. It is a passion born out of the desire to be served. In our lust, it's all about what we want. And you have to understand, if you're listening to this sermon, you're saying, well, you know, I, I get that, but that's not really me. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't view pornography. I don't, you know, fantasize about other people. That's, that's really not where I'm at. Let me explain some other types of sexual lust for you. How about lusting after a relationship? So not lusting sexually, not saying I want to have sex with that person, but fantasizing about that perfect fairy tale romance where a guy comes or a girl comes and sweeps you off your feet and you go and you live in this wonderful home and you have a Labrador retriever and you never fight and you read the paper and you're drinking coffee and you just romance one another and they're just unbelievably romantic all the time. That's lust. That's wanting something you don't have for yourself, not for the other person. You become obsessed with that. In fact, there's probably more books written, and you can see them, right? You just go to Walgreens or whatever, and you'll see the romance aisle. There's more books written about this issue than, I would argue, porn magazines issued. Right? There's this idea that there's some romance out there that is going to satisfy my soul. That is lust. So whether it's sexual or whether it's relational, lust remains lust. It is a selfish obsession for something you want but don't have. And I I, I teach a lot of groups about sexual purity. And the interesting thing is that I've had equally men and women, right? Women, there's a group for you. And men, I, I, I teach the group for men. And in the group for men, it's interesting that for the men, there's some men who struggle like I do with more of the, the pornographic element. But there are other men that struggle very relationally. In fact, some men have full-blown affairs without ever touching the other person. Why? Because pornography, as well as extramarital affairs, are the ultimate desire manufacturer. It's the ultimate wanting something you can never have. Right? When you're thinking about an affair, it alights your passions. Why? Because I can't be with that person because I'm married, and it makes it wrong, and it makes it seductive. You see, you don't necessarily have to lust in a sexual way to lust in a sexual way, if you want to put it that way. It remains the same. Let's talk about each, though. There's the kind of person that lusts after the thing itself, and there's the kind of person that lusts after the person and the relationship themselves. So there's the person that, as I put it earlier, just wants the product. They want the, the feelings of romance. They want the sex. They want the whatever. They just want the product that another person can get them. They want the thing itself. Now, when you look at Amnon, he definitely falls into that category. He wants the thing itself. He is not in love with Tamar. He thinks he is, but he's actually in love with what she can give him. And when she refuses to give it to him, the ultimate proof that that's what he's after is when she refuses to give it to him, he takes it by force. He's not interested in her. If he was truly interested in her, if he truly loved her, he would respect her wishes. That's not what he's about. He's about what he wants. So he takes it. Now, when we have this type of lust, that's how we're going to be. We will use people, we will use things to get what we want without any concern about those we are hurting. Because that's what it's about. It's about what we want. 
There's another quote from Esther Perel. It's, it's, uh, she gave another talk called Why Happy Couples Cheat. She says this, We have never been more inclined to stray in our society. And not because we have new desires, but because we live in an era where we feel that we are entitled to pursue our desires. Because this is a culture where I deserve to be happy. And if we used to, to divorce because we were unhappy, this is a great line, today we divorce because we could be happier. And if divorce carried all the shame today, choosing to stay when you can leave is the new shame. So it used to be a shameful thing back in the day to get divorced. Now it's a shameful thing to stay with a deadbeat. Right, that's the shameful thing. That's the thing that we all turn away from. But I hope you guys catch what she's saying. We have this idea in our hearts that we have the right to be happy. And if my happiness comes at your expense, so be it. If it's going to hurt you to divorce you, I don't care. It's going to make me happier, so therefore I'm going to divorce you. If it's going to hurt you to treat you that way and break up with you, I don't care because I'm about what I want. If it's going to hurt these women to view them in pornography, I don't care because I want what I want. It's not about what they want. That's the idea of selfish obsession. The next thing that I can mention is the idea of people who are obsessed with people. So it's, it's not about the thing, right? These are people that actually aren't too interested in the thing. You know, you might not even want to have sexual relations with these people, but you want the person to become obsessed with the person. Here's the issue with that. People can't satisfy what you're looking for. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, People have flaws. They're not perfect. We love Jesus because he's worthy. That's why a Christian loves Jesus. People, when they ask me, why do you love Jesus? I don't say, well, you know, it's kind of a bummer. I have to give up a lot of things. But you know what? I don't want to go to hell, right? I look at them and I say, because he is worthy. I don't love Jesus in spite of his flaws. I love Jesus because he's the only one without flaws. He's the only perfect person. He's the only perfect love. Every other person on this planet will let you down because they are not perfect. You were designed to experience the love of God himself. And because of that, the love of other people will never satisfy you. And if I could just stop real quick and just say this to all the people out there who have been affected negatively by this sin of lust, what I'll tell you is that it is not your fault. If I view pornography, it is not because my wife is beautiful enough. It's not because she is loving enough. It is not because she is fun enough. It is because I am dissatisfied in God. And if the God of the entire universe, the God who created me and made me for him, who loves me more than anyone else, who died for my sins and rose again on the third day, if that love is not sufficient for my heart, what love could be? Looking to my wife to satisfy my eternal longing is not a good place. She's got flaws. And when I look to her, when I put that weight on her, I become very picky. I start to notice flaws very fast. There's a very funny article written a couple years ago called Picky, Picky, Picky uh, about dating relationships in Manhattan. I want to read you guys a little excerpt of it because it makes me giggle. It's very funny. He says, I happened to get my first clear sighting of it, of this pickiness, on The Love Connection, which is, I guess, some dating show. It says, the television show featuring couples just back from their first dates. As I recall the scene, even the placid host, Chuck Woolery, seemed surprised by one contestant's report. The contestant says, Well, it started out great, Chuck. She opened the door and she looked fantastic. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head and he said, Chuck, she had dirty elbows. And that was that. The guy was through with that rest of the date. 
He knew that the relationship was doomed. Watching him, my first instinct was to suggest that there might be some way to salvage this relationship and make it work. Maybe some couples therapy, maybe a little soap and water. But then I realized it wouldn't matter. He'd just find something else wrong with her. He sounded all too much like my single friends I'd been hearing in New York explain why their latest relationship had gone wrong. Well, I thought she was smart, but she mispronounced the word Goethe, so I knew that she was a fraud. Well, I thought he was interesting, but then I spotted the road less travel on his bookshelf. Well, if she'd only lose seven pounds, then I could love her. Sure, he's a partner, but it's not really a big firm, and he wears those dorky black socks. These New Yorkers all sounded like victims of their flaumatics, although none of them would have the willingness to admit it. No one ever does. During my years living alone, I always knew that my own requirements in a woman were perfectly reasonable. All I wanted was a nice novelist slash astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. <laughs> so, you know, it's very humorous, it's very funny, but when we look at it, we realize how true it is. How quick we are to find flaws in those that we're with, to pick at people's personalities. And the littlest things become the biggest deals after years in a relationship, don't they? Where it's like the things that shouldn't matter, like the way that she washes a dish or puts on the toilet paper dispenser, drives you crazy. Why? Because you are a lustful person, and so am I. Because I'm looking for flaws, because I'm putting a weight on my marriage that it was never created to sustain. God did not create marriage to satisfy the eternal soul. He created marriage to turn you to the greater love that it is only a picture of. That's the purpose. Now, I don't want to distract from a a real problem, and that is this. Sometimes relationships do have real issues. I'm not saying that by loving God, you should ignore real problems, such as an abusive spouse, or somebody who, if you're in a dating relationship, someone who is a non-believer, or something to that effect. You should not ignore real issues. My point is, is that your flawomatic, this, this issue of lust in your heart that causes you to find issues with everything in your life and to be dissatisfied with everyone in your life is going to distract you from the real issues. So when a real issue does come up, it's just white noise on the background of your complaining. See, you need to have a correct understanding of love before you can see the correct reasons of being unhappy in a relationship. And it should propel you to work on those things instead of sitting placidly by and complaining about them. The next thing that we have to realize is, in all of us, and I just said it, but I'll say it again, the real problem is we keep blaming the person and we never look at the real problem in ourselves. C.S. Lewis talked on this issue as well in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, Our experience is colored through and through by books and plays and movies, and it takes patience and skill to disentangle the things that we have really learned from our life ourselves. People get from books and movies the idea that if you get married to the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves that they have made a mistake and are entitled to change not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of their new love just as it went out of the old one. So he's pointing out the issue. He's saying, what do we think? Well, if only I found the one, then my relationship would be flawless. There would be no issues. We would never fight. It would be this glamorous relationship where we just love each other. 
And then when you get into a relationship, you get into a marriage, and you realize it's not like that, you'll say, well, you must not be the one. So I'm going to divorce you and keep looking. See, this says, keep looking for all of eternity. You will never find this one. Because what is this one really about? It's about the one you want. It's about your selfishness. And that's the real issue. The real issue is our selfishness. That's what's keeping us unhappy. That's what's keeping us away from true joy. That's what's keeping us from knowing what real pleasure really is and having marriages that are amazing and incredible and reflect the glory of God in ways that you couldn't even imagine. It's our selfishness, and it's my selfishness too. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus gives us the solution. He says to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now this was so important for me to understand, and I hope you guys grab it, because it will change your life if you do. Jesus is not saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to live a miserable life of pain and suffering, and you're going to hate it. He says this, if you seek your life, you will never get it. But if you lose it, you're going to find it. Jesus' issue with us, the reason why he looks at us and says, you're wicked, you're evil, is not that you have a passion to be happy. It's that your pursuit of happiness is in the wrong place. In Jeremiah chapter 2, I don't have time to go over it right now, but in Jeremiah chapter 2, God looks at his people and he says, you have committed two horrible sins. He says, you have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and you have hewn for yourself broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's their sins? You've denied me who would actually make you happy, and you've sought happiness in places where you can never find it. That's your sin. God is someone who is intensely worried about your satisfaction and joy. Why? Because God is glorified in your joy. God seeks our joy because it brings him supreme glory and excellency because it shows his worth to the world that doesn't know him. God is very, very concerned about your joy. And that's why he says you need to understand where it is. It's not in seeking your life. It's not in trying to find what you want and trying to get your own way. It's about letting go of your life. It's about denying yourself. It's about serving me which shows us two very important things. Number one, Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the prize. We do not follow Jesus to have good marriages. We have good marriages because we follow Jesus. Jesus is the prize. And if you put that in the wrong order, you are engaging in lust. You're not going to make this work. God must be supreme in your heart. He is the prize. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say take up your cross and suffer. Just take up your Christ and find delight because you're going to be with me. You're going to be with me. I'm the prize. Die to everything and show my glory. Christians are always trying to look for ways to show that God is greater than this in my life. God is greater than my sex drive. God is greater than my finances. God is greater than my food. God is greater. Everything we're thinking about in life, how do I make God look more glorious than this? As a single person, very simple follow his commandments. If he says, wait to be in a covenant to have sex, wait to be in a covenant to have sex. Take up your cross. Suffer. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to do that, but it is going to be worth it because it brings glory to God, and that is what will really satisfy you. If you're married, 
Live a life that glorifies God. Love your wife, love your husband in a way that brings honor to his name. Seek that kind of love. That's how you do it. And that means that sometimes you're going to have to suffer in marriage. I know it's a shocker to a lot of people in my generation, but you're going to have to suffer. You have to be patient. You have to go through things that you don't want to go through. You're going to have to withstand things that you don't want to withstand. You have to deny yourself things that you don't want to deny. But Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. Seeking your own your whole life has made you miserable. It's made me miserable. I've sought my own my whole life, and I have become more and more empty. Jesus says maybe the reason why you're so empty is because you're seeking your own pleasure instead of giving it up for me. If you did that, if you tried it, maybe you would really find pleasure, which is radical. Do I really believe that when I am suffering for the sake of my marriage, I am engaging in the greatest joy? That when I die to myself and I choose to serve my wife over my own desires, I am receiving the greatest joy, not her. She's being served, and there's a joy in that, but I am serving, and there is so much more joy in that. Jesus says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set out before him, he endured the cross. He gave up his life for us, and he counted it joy. John three sixteen, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. We should all know it. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It doesn't say God so lusted the world that he took, which is what I do. God so loved us that he gave. Do I so love my wife? Do I so love my father that I give? Or do I so lust that I'm constantly thinking of new ways to take, which is my issue? I'm going to wrap this up by just talking about hope for a little bit. Because here's the thing. After we leave this sermon, you could think like, well, that sounds easy. I just, gotta, I just gotta love, right? I just gotta love God, love people. That's simple, right? No, it's not simple. Don't quit because it's going to take incredible amounts of time and patience. This is a lifelong pursuit. I've been battling lust in my life for over 15 years and it has not ended. It's gotten significantly better, but it hasn't ended. I still struggle. Breaks my heart to confess that, but I still struggle. I lose passion in my marriage. I lust in ways that I shouldn't because I'm selfish, and I need to work on that. I need to pursue God, and this is really important. Galatians 6 verse 9, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, says, don't grow weary while doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't lose heart, if you don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't get tired of doing what you know to be right, because when the time is right, God will give you a harvest of pleasure and bounty. You'll grow in ways that you never even considered that you could. You will be new every morning if you pursue him every morning. He has everything that you need. Don't ever doubt that. That also applies to marriage. If you want to have a passionate marriage, if you don't have a passionate marriage right now, and you're like, I want a passionate marriage, it's not easy. It takes time, diligence, and focus. You can't just say, well, it's going to happen, right? I'm just going to pray about it. It's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. You need to make plans in your day to say, how can I serve my spouse? How can I make this about loving them and not about me? If you sit around all day thinking about how your spouse can serve you, you will be miserable. I can absolutely guarantee you that. But if you spend your days thinking about how to serve your spouse, you will be unbelievably joyous if that comes from your relationship with God. Your passion will not die. It'll be renewed every day. 
The final thing I want to mention, we need to talk about this as a church. We have to bring this out into the light. This cannot rest in the darkness. So much of Satan's goal and desire in our fellowship is to bring darkness to this area through the avenue of shame. He wants to make us feel shameful for the struggles that we have so that we don't talk about it, but this is exactly where you need to talk about it. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews encourages us. He says, Encourage one another daily, so long as it is called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has a massive way of hardening you. For years I struggled in the dark with this sin. Didn't find any amount of victory. But when I brought it to the open, there was amazing grace. There was amazing joy. And there was amazing progress. I still have accountability in my life. I do not stray from that because it's a great blessing. And I encourage you guys today, if you have issues in this area, which most of us do, let's be honest, if you have issues in this area, talk about it. Get with people in the fellowship. Talk with them about what's going on in your life. Seek to be better. Simple trying harder won't do it. I've tried, and I'm sure you have too. There's other solutions. There's other ways. Like I said earlier, there's girls. There's a girls group that meets on Thursdays. There's a men's group that meets on Tuesdays. And there's even a group for spouses that meets on Saturdays. That's all at this fellowship, and it's all for you guys. If you have any more thoughts about this issue, I encourage you guys to go to runninglight.org. That's the ministry me and Bo work at. And it's, it's chock full of resources for you guys, and I hope it blesses you. But ultimately, this is what we need to take away from this. God wants us to have passionate relationships. God does delight in our sexuality, but there is boundaries, and there's borders, and those boundaries and borders are beautiful because God himself loves us, God himself created us, and God himself knows what's best for us. So let's pursue our joy and passion in him and allow that to overflow to others. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for your love, your magnificent, wonderful, just grace-abounding love that you have for us. Lord, it's beyond anything that we deserve because we fail in so many areas. I know I fail in so many areas, and I praise you for your forgiveness. God, thank you for loving me in spite of my flaws. Thank you for caring for me. Help me, Lord. Help us, Lord not to seek out the flaws in those around us, not to seek out the flaws in our relationships, but to seek out the goodness in this world, to see and to love people the way that you love us. Father, help us to to put you first, to not have our sexuality be our ultimate desire, but to have you be that desire, to be that treasure. In your name, amen.